We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm speaking with registered architect and founder of Breathe Architecture and Nightingale Housing, Jeremy McLeod. Australia and many other countries around the world have housing affordability crises that need to be addressed. As architects, we have the ability to have meaningful impact in this space and create housing that is socially, financially and environmentally sustainable. In this episode, we discuss how Jeremy and the Nightingale team believe that homes should be built for people and not solely for profit, and also the organisations Nightingale has started working with to try and narrow the gap between affordable, sustainable housing for more people in Australia. Let's jump in. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much once again for letting me back into Breathe <laughs> to have a chat with you on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. I'm going to give you a key, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's always good to come back. And yeah, just thank you so much for your time and generosity being part of the podcast. So obviously, Nightingale is one of the leaders of sustainable housing and affordable and equitable housing in Australia, uh, if not the world. And there's so many parts to sustainability that I think some people think, you know, you put solar panels on something and it's sustainable, um, but there's actually so many different levels to that. Now, Nightingale delivers on all of, all of those levels, but one of them is definitely about accessibility to sustainable housing. And you work with so many different groups to make these buildings accessible to people so that we can get some of this equitable housing that we talk about happening. Can you just... Tell us a little bit about who who you're currently working with, and maybe maybe start off sort of reeling off the Nightingale projects where where this has started to to be included from the from the get go. Okay, Dan, do you mind if I go off the reservation for a minute? <laughs> I love it when you do this. This is great. <laughs> All right, so yeah, maybe a little bit of background. I'm not sure. Well, if this let's is the, let's talk yeah. about housing first mm-hmm. as a you know as a basic human right and where we are as a country and where we sit in in the global sphere of housing. And um, and I'd argue that Nightingale is not a global leader. I would mm-hmm. say that, you know, city-states like the city of Vienna, you know, or, uh, you know, in fact, the, the entire country of Finland, you know, I would say that they're leaders in sustainable housing and in housing equity, right. you know. And if you look at, you know, what Berlin has done for housing, you know, post kind of a massive wave of Syrian, you know, refugees coming into their city. So there are really great, state actors around the world that deliver housing really well. And let me just kind of paint the picture for where we sit in Australia. You know, so let's use Finland as the ideal housing solution, which is that housing is seen as a basic human right. And so they have a housing first policy, which means that if anyone is homeless in Finland, the state builds them a house and houses them. You know, so for all of you far-right liberal voters out there, don't panic. And I'm going to tell you why, because there's there's good financial uh, incentives for doing that. So what the Finnish government has found is that for every dollar they spend on housing, they're saving a dollar on building correction facilities. They're saving a dollar on building, you know, more mental health facilities. They're saving a dollar on increased policing. They're saving a dollar on all of the other things, the support services that you need to deal with, you know, homeless people on the streets. So what they've found is that there's a multiplier in there, and I, I can't remember the exact number, Dan, but I think the multiplier is like six to one. Mm-hmm. So for every dollar they spend on housing, they get a $6 benefit to their economy for money that they're not spending on all the other stuff that you need to do mm-hmm. to deal with you know, a society that's fraying at the edges. Mm-hmm. And then let's go to the exact opposite of that. Let's talk about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So Los Angeles is, you know, you know, for some, it's it's the place that they want to be. So for those who have everything, you know, a house uh, on the hills with a swimming pool and uh, a couple of maids um, and you've got lots and lots of money, it's a great place to live. It's a great climate. LA has 70,000 people sleeping on the streets. So in tents, without tents, you know, their housing system is totally broken. So that is... That, that's an example of, you know, a low-tax environment 
where everyone is left to their own devices to defend for themselves. So if you have, congratulations, you have. And if you have not, good luck. And what does that mean for everyone else in the city of Los Angeles? You know, so I was there last year and I met with um, a guy called Charlie Ligeti from the Housing Innovation Lab. And fundamentally what it's meant is that there's been a mass exodus of people from LA because they find it unsafe or they think it's unsavory or, you know, they find it just downright depressing. And that it, the problem has got so bad now that the state doesn't know how to solve it. You know, so we're seeing, you know, the entire city kind of crumbling and turning into kind of this walled enclave of those who have, those who have not, and then everyone else who can afford to leave exiting the city. So they're the two extremes. And where does Australia sit? Like somewhere in between those two things. So at some point in the 1980s, as a country, we decided to stop investing in public housing. You know, we decided to stop owning, you know, um, public housing. Like think back to the 60s, we had, you know, architects working for the state, building housing. That was their job. And they were really good at it. And then as we turned, you know, like think about, you know, Victoria in the late 90s, you know, we sold our trams, we sold our trains, we sold our telecommunications, you know, we sold our water water authority, we sold our electricity uh, supplier. I mean, how's all that working? All this privatisation, right? Mm -hmm. So all the stuff that our state had spent 200 years establishing, they sold it off to the highest bidder. It's all those things that we used to own as a people we no longer own. And there was also a decision made to privatise housing, to give it to the private sector to deliver. So through one of two things, either through kind of, you know, church-based organisations like, you know, Anglicare or the Uniting Church or the Catholic Church or to community housing providers like uh, Housing Choices or Women's Property Initiatives. But that the state really kind of, you know, started to downsell its responsibility in, in housing, you know, and just, you know, Get a consultant to handle that, right? As <laughs> they're working for Dan Andrews. Yeah. Right? Um, so, and then the other side was that there was a decision made that we thought, or you know, the government of the day thought that uh, that the market will supply. So all we need to do is increase supply, and that then by increasing supply, you know, economics would tell you that with more supply, the price comes down to meet the appropriate demand. So. They thought that they could provide enough housing just by increasing supply. So they left it to the market to, to provide. Then, then there were government taxation settings put in place. So one was negative, uh, negative gearing, which basically means if you own an investment property, you can get a tax exemption for the, for the income that you're losing on that, you know, while you're paying interest on that. But the other thing, and I think the more well, the bigger problem was capital gains tax exemptions. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that, you know, if you own a property and you buy it for, let's say, $500,000 and then you sell it 10 years later for $1.5 million and you make a million dollars, Dan, congratulations, in Australia you get a 50% capital gains tax exemption against that, mm-hmm. which means you don't pay tax on your first $500,000. Mm-hmm. Unlike any other business, you get 50% tax-free mm-hmm. and then you only pay tax you know, on the last 50%. So with a massive free kick on tax, everyone who could in Australia started to invest in the housing market saying this capital gains tax thing, this is a, this is a good thing. So what we've seen, you know, since the early 2000s, since the, um, the evolution of capital gains tax exemptions is those who have people with money buying two or more houses. And so we've seen that kind of, you know, spike now so that mm. 20% of people in Australia own two or more houses. Strangely enough, <laughs> we've also seen a downward spiral in 20% of people trying to buy a house, 20% less people have bought a house. So now for the first time since like 1947, mm. there are less Australians owning a house than renting. Mm. So we are in, we need to accept the fact that we're in a capitalist society, mm. that there are government settings, mm. that we've seen, you know, uh, lots of talk from the federal government about the Housing Australian Future Fund. We've seen, <laughs> I mean, can we just talk about that for a minute? <laughs> sure. So we're spending $364 billion on submarines, which may or may not ever actually be built. 
Um, but we're only spending uh, $10 billion to put into a fund. So we're going to invest that in the stock market and then every year we're going to take the profit out of that after we reduce the uh, capital gains or sorry, the CPI adjustment and we're going to spend that on housing. So one, to be clear, is $364 billion upfront spend and the other one will be spending the returns on a $10 billion investment. Like they're not even close. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, I'm confused about how I feel about that, but all of my colleagues in affordable housing providing companies or charities all say that the Housing Australia Future Fund is the best that we've got and we should take it. So they, they want the Greens to do the deal and they just want, to, they just want that money to start flowing. Okay. So with, with all of these deals and you know, fewer people owning, have there been some specific groups, I guess, or demographics that have sort of popped up who have had less access to housing or have, yeah, are now being unhoused? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's generational wealth, mm. right? Mm. So um, if you were a baby boomer and you bought a house uh, in Ascot Vale in 1983 for $42,000 mm. and that place is now worth, you know, $2 million, congratulations, mm. you're a millionaire by virtue of the ridiculousness of the housing market, not because you're a genius, but just because you bought in the 80s. Mm. I know that I, I know that example very well because that's my mother and my father bought that house mm-hmm. there. And you know, and so for them, it took them two years to save their deposit. So that's in, in the 80s. Mm. I bought my first house in the 90s, and it took me about four years to save my deposit. Mm. So I have four daughters now in their late 20s and early 30s. It takes them in Melbourne about 10 years to save a deposit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that will give you some idea about how hard it is. So the people that have been most impacted by this are first home buyers. So, you know, and so we're seeing that particularly play out in the younger cohort. Mm-hmm. So kind of, you know, 25 to 35-year-old not being able to access the housing market. But that's split into two halves. Mm-hmm. So the people that come from middle-class families with middle-class parents, their parents have been helping them access the housing market. So there's mm-hmm. been an intergenerational wealth transfer from the parents to middle-class children. But working-class kids, you know, or, you know, our first-generation migrant kids mm-hmm. trying to buy, I, I say kids because I'm 51, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> trying to buy into housing, it's very, very difficult for them. Because uh, they don't have the bank of mum and dad chipping in, you know, $50,000 for the deposit on their first home. So we're seeing a stratification both of age, so lots of baby boomers owning owning two or more houses, lots of uh, people aged 35 years and under not owning any houses, and then within that 35 years and under cohort, then we're seeing a class gap. So those who come from generational wealth getting into housing, those who don't, not being able to, being stuck in the rental market. Mm. The other cohort that's being that's being faced with you know increasing levels of homelessness, the fastest growing cohort of homelessness, is older single women aged over fifty five. Why is that? Mm. Because in Australia, our divorce rates have just tipped over fifty percent. Historically, and again, these are older women. So historically, think about you know like if I think about you know my parents or my grandmother, you know. For my, for my grandma, um, my grandpa's out working. He's doing, you know, generating the income. If he was, you know, if he was getting paid superannuation, he's got that superannuation in a separate account. He's, he might be working in finance or accounting. He's financially literate, whereas my grandma is at home looking after, you know, five kids, looking after a whole bunch of grandkids, some nieces and nephews, doing all the important stuff to kind of hold the household together. And if they were to separate, historically, she might not have even known that my grandfather had superannuation. He might have taken half of the value of the house. Mm. But without a lot of financial literacy, let's say that, you know, you've got a house worth a million dollars and then you agree in a settlement to take, in a divorce settlement to take half that money. So she gets $500,000. She doesn't know about the superannuation or that she has a right to that. So she doesn't access that superannuation. So she doesn't get any of the superannuation the male might take another $500,000 in superannuation. He's also financially illiterate and he knows that he needs to get back into the housing market. 
so that he's not eating away at his capital. You know, in that instance, my grandma might decide to go and rent, mm. you know, and so she's got $500,000 and she thinks that's great, I can live forever. Mm. And so she rents and it might cost her, let's call it $50,000 a year. And, of course, after 10 years, mm. she's out of money mm. and at which point she has no mechanism to be able to pay rental and she's stuck on the pension, mm. which might not be enough to live near her family, friends, support networks, which might mean that she has to move to central Victoria or to Adelaide or to, you know, another place and she becomes dispossessed or she gets on the waiting list for women's property initiatives to try and be housed. So it's sad beyond belief, right, mm. that, that these are the two cohorts that are, that are experiencing this. Mm. And we've seen that real-time Nightingale. So anyway, so mm. that's the context under which we're mm. operating. So it's quite the, the, the young and then the old females yes. seem to be really badly affected. Yes. And is there also a, a cohort of First Nations people who are finding it difficult to get into that market as well? And that's, I guess, that ongoing multi-generational uh, if you uh, think issue, about the, the mm. if you if you talk about yeah intergenerational wealth mm. you know so and you think about their health outcomes and the wealth outcomes mm. and the wealth gap between First Nations Australians and non First Nations Australians it's fast mm. so of course First Nations Australians don't like you know as a statistical group don't come from wealthy parents. You know, don't have someone transferring money down to them to help them buy a house. Mm. So yeah, that they are largely, you know, underrepresented in home ownership, mm. which is why they're on the priority ballot for mm. Nightingale housing. Right. But mm. anyway, maybe uh, I'll talk about. So Nightingale housing, you know, was basically you know established mm. as a kind of you know as this place between you know what the state should be doing. So ideally. Nightingale housing shouldn't exist, right? The mm. state should be like Finland mm. and it should house all of its people because housing mm. is a basic human right. Yeah. And then I could just go back to my day job designing buildings. You know, mm. Dan McKenna could design from the CEO <laughs> of Nightingale Housing and, you know, I don't know, be a Tetris champion or whatever it is that he wants to do. And then all of our lives, you know, uh, get easier and everyone gets housed equitably. Because yeah. is that because at the moment, um, I'm not sure if it's in just Victoria and Australia um, more broadly, is, is there some sort of uh, quota that developments need to offer for affordable or affordable <laughs> housing or accessible housing? Is it a silly uh, question? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, so you're talking about inclusionary zoning, Dan, and it's okay. not a silly question at all because if I'm working on a project in London in the city of Cambridge or the city of Kent or I'm working on a project in New York, in Brooklyn, you know, uh, I have to deliver 20% affordable housing, you know, okay. as mm. as as part of that project, that's and so all the feasibilities get written mm. um, with that in, that included, and all of the housing is tenure blind, which means that you know if you're building uh, housing in the city of Kent, all the apartments look the same, same finishes, same front doors, salt and peppered throughout the development. There's no division between those who have and those who have not. And so, why does that work? You know, you say like, oh, oh my God, that will that will ruin the financial return of my development. Yeah, it wouldn't be feasible anymore <laughs> because. What happens is that when the developers write their um, write their feasibilities, they write in the discount that they need to provide for the twenty percent affordable housing, and that discount then comes out of the land value. Mm. So what it does is that those super inflated land values, they they the residual land value in the feasibility gets calculated by what the developer has to deliver under the planning scheme. And uh, I was at a workshop with you know Lord Mayor Sally Cap. Uh, talking about affordable housing and how to deliver it. Brian Herlihy from Lendlease was there and he said that Lendlease currently worldwide is delivering 11,000 affordable housing dwellings. So Lendlease, great Australian company. Do you know how many of those 11,000 dwellings are being delivered in Australia? How many? <laughs> like a tiny number. Let's call it zero because the other 11,000 are being delivered in places like London and New York, mm. and they're being delivered in places of inclusionary zoning. And he said to this, you know, this this roundtable of housing experts that if the planning settings say that inclusionary zoning must include, you know, let's call it 20%, you know, uh, affordable housing or 20% social housing, 
they just write that into their feasibilities and then that then backs solves the residual land value. It doesn't hurt the development. It doesn't make the development unfeasible. It just means we stop paying stupid money for stupid pieces of land. Mm. At the moment, the people that generally win out of development are landholders that bought a site in 1970, have never done anything to help the city, mm. and they're just capitalising on the uh, on the on the capital growth of their property. Mm. So, and also, I think that, that this idea of inclusionary zoning, which which would help us solve this mm. so elegantly over the next 20 years, and it's going to take a long time to be able to build up, you know, the number of dwellings that we need, but it would help us solve it. But also the answer is not trying to rush it through the way that the uh, Victorian government, but consult widely, particularly with organisations like Lend-Lease and Murbach, big organisations that are doing a lot of housing, and then grandfather or grandmother <laughs> the uh, the inclusionary zoning in. So we say that we're going to start, let's call it in 2028, and then we're going to start, you know, with... Uh, in 2028, we're going to start with 5%. Mm. And then we're going to ratchet up by 1% every year for the next 15 years until we get to 20%. Mm. And that means that any any big developments that any big developers are currently running, this won't impact mm. those. It won't break anything financially. And it gives everyone the opportunity to, when they're working out their new land transactions, to readjust the value of the land. Mm. So it's, we need to give developers the time to be able to get ready for this and to be able to build feasibilities that work financially. So anyway, I, I feel like that's a very, very good thing that we should do. Mm. Yeah, because it just seems like the land values at the moment, making it very difficult for anyone who wants to do some of these forward-thinking ideas to deliver accessible housing to people because, yeah, at the moment it's, um, it's a choice that developers have to take on board. And in some instances to deliver the, the metric that you're trying to deliver, if you're trying to deliver 10% um, equitable housing, you might have to put an extra level on a building and then some planners might say, oh, well, now you've gone too tall, so you can't do that development. So let's just let's just approve a building that's a standard standard <laughs> apartment building. Yeah, so, so uh, Rob Fradlin, um, who's the founder of Housing All Australians, has written a model exactly about that. Dan, it's called mm. the Prads model, mm. and basically it looks at um, value uplift, so increasing density mm. when social and affordable housing is included in the development. And so he's got a model there that's ready for any council to take on board and say, okay, this is what we need to do. Mm. And then if we think about, you know, what Nightingale tries to do, you know, so when when Nightingale transacts on, you know, let's call it Nightingale Village, you know, that, that project there, there's 20% social housing salt and pepper throughout Nightingale, Nightingale Village, mm. you know, and so you don't know who are social housing tenants and who aren't. And so Nightingale works closely with women's property initiatives, housing that cohort over 55 and um, Housing Choices Australia. And that's been an incredibly successful outcome. But, you know, for Nightingale, it, it, it's super tough, right, because mm. we're transacting on the land, we're buying the land at the same price that a for-profit property developer is going to buy that for, and they're selling 100% of their apartments, you know, for profit, mm. whereas we're saying, well, we need to discount 20% of the apartments mm. so to make it affordable for women's property initiatives to be able to buy in. Mm. So it's really, really hard for private actors to operate, to basically build social and affordable housing mm. into their projects without government assistance, mm. which is why, you know, I think that Assemble have been, you know, incredibly intelligent about the way that they've wrapped in um, affordable housing into their projects, you know, as a rental model, you know. Mm. So, you know, one good example of, uh, of, a, of a project, of a housing project that delivers on sustainability and that delivers on this idea of housing equity, but it also delivers uh, on a on a financial return to super superannuation companies. So I think that Assemble is a really good model to show that you can do mm. you can do good things and you can make money while doing that. So mm. very elegant model. Mm. I think that Nightingale, you know, as a not for profit, you know, it tries to do you know it tries to do everything simultaneously uh, without any profit in there. Mm. But the challenge for Nightingale has been obviously our ability to scale, you mm. know, because, you know, unless you can get, you can offer people, you know, a financial return, it's very hard to get mm. truckloads of cash kind of 
dropping mm. in the front door. Yeah, and that's sort of the investment cash that you need to get the projects off the ground. Yeah, so mm. maybe I'll just give for those of you that don't know what Nightingale is. So we're architects, right, at Breathe. We thought that this housing thing was broken and we thought that the problem was in design and construction and architecture. Uh, you know, I had this very binary view that I thought that developers were bad and architects were good. And uh, so in 2007, we bought the site that we're sitting in today, Dan, and it took me uh, about six years with an incredible young architect called Bonnie Herring to deliver this project called The Commons. The Commons started, it was the planning permit lodgement was called Nightingale Apartments. Mm -hmm. What happened through that time was that um, the GFC happened, global financial crisis, uh, we lost our bank funding and we had to beg an impact investor to come and save us. And so small giants, Danny and Barry, legends that they are, put money in and then they come and funded the commons through to completion. So we couldn't have done the commons without small giants. The challenge for us was that when they came and brought their money, they also took you know uh, legal control of the project. And so when they say Nightingale's a dumb name or their project manager said Nightingale's a dumb name, we should get another name and they want to change it to the commons, we had to accept that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying the Commons isn't a good name, but I'm saying that as an example, it meant that we lost control over particular elements of the building. So the Commons is still great, but there are different decisions that Bon and I would have made mm. if we had, have, you know, had control all the way through. So what we learned out of the back end of that was that building a great building that's sustainable, that's, you know, that, that focuses on community, you know, all of those things, that's great. Mm. You know, and we pulled heaps of costs out of the out of the building through a sustainability of reductionism. You know, they had this whole kind of, you know, Bonnie just had this mantra, build less, give more on the one, you know, all the way through the whole project. But by the time we finished that, we realised that to actually have impact, to actually really get upstream, we needed to control the purse strings. Mm. And so Nightingale was really about um, a call to arms to the rest of the architecture community saying, let's try and democratise the capital mm. and let's try and, as a profession, let's try and get involved in housing delivery as kind of, you know, as our duty, mm. you know. And so I bought the site across the road and so we built Nightingale One and then we got a bunch of other Melbourne architects to invest into that. And then each of those Melbourne architects, or most of them, then went on to start their own Nightingale project. And so we went and helped James Legg at Six Degrees, you know. And so we brought a lot of those architects in on the journey. We shared with them the IP. We got a government grant. We employed Dan McKenna, Dan McKenna uh, you know, and so Dan McKenna, who was like, you know, our second employee at Nightingale Housing, has ended up being the CEO now. So he's been there kind of since the start, mm. you know, and then Nightingale's fundamental principles are that you can solve affordability and I would argue that we can't. Mm. So, you know, it's been a real challenge for us, particularly in the last couple of years, and I would say that, you know, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we take out of the building, you know, uh, it's still amazing to me, you know, that we can't just make housing cheaper. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that. But ideally we're delivering housing that's accessible for all people, mm -hmm. that we're delivering 20% social and affordable housing, 20% priority balladers to people like First Nations Australians, to single women aged over 55, to key service workers, so people people that work in, uh, say, early childhood or aged care that are really important parts of our society but they just don't get paid much money so we try and help mm. them get access to housing and then obviously first home buyers. We try and make sure that all of our buildings, in fact, all of our buildings are 100% electric. They're powered by 100% green power um, and all of our buildings have a minimum star rating of 7.5 stars, not six stars, not five stars, minimum of 7.5 mm -hmm. and that's ratcheting up over time um, through 2030. And then lastly, we think about community. And so how do you build a building that's actually about fostering community, mm. helping people connect, you know, um, rather than kind of landing an ocean liner in a suburb that kind of no one engages with. And so when I talk about community, I don't just mean the community within the building, mm. but how, does, how do the people that live there, how do we make a place that actually talks to the broader community? And so, again, the great thing about Nightingale Village as an idea 203 apartments sounds massive, right? But when you break it down into six buildings of about 35 apartments each, everyone knows each other, you know, uh, of those, you know, um, 35 apartments, 20%, uh, you know, might be from women's property initiatives, so there might be seven women living in there dotted throughout the building, 
who are part of the community, embedded in that community, but you don't know which ones are social housing and which isn't. Everyone's the same. Mm -hmm. And then we activate the ground floor plane. We make it for people, not cars, you know, because you know I'm all about housing is a basic human right, Dan. And what about the housing of cars? Car parking <laughs> is not a human right. It is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Let's all be really clear about that. But um, anyway, mm -hmm. I digress. So, so that's kind of that's that's kind of the fundamental, you know, rules of what Nightingale tries to do. And so, yeah. And Nightingale now has kind of finished over 420 apartments across the country. So mm. a lot of them in, you know, a lot of them in Brunswick, very close <laughs> to here. Uh, you know, but there's one under construction in Sydney. We've just finished one in um, in South Australia. You know, Don Finney led a Nightingale project in uh, in Fremantle in Western Australia. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we're seeing Nightingale's, you know, talks to every disenfranchised person aged under 35 trying to get into, <laughs> trying to get into housing, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about Nightingale is that it was established to, I guess, to be a flag bearer or a vanguard and to say this is what's possible. You can build sustainability, you can build uh, affordability, and you can build community all into the same building. And importantly, sustainability and affordability can coexist. And it's been pretty frustrating because for a long time you'll be told that, oh, no, sustainability, oh, that's that's going to be an extra 15%. We better put that as an extra line item in the cost plan. Mm. You know, um, whereas if you approach sustainability as an act of reductionism, what can mm. I take out, mm. you know, rather than what can I add in, mm. it becomes more cost effective. Mm. Then it helps with your building operation because once your building is more efficient, you know, your windows are the right size, you've got your shading handled, it gets cheaper to operate. And then when you build a building and you're thinking about this idea of building it well and building it to last mm. and whole of life carbon. So you build a building to last 100 years mm. and what does the maintenance look like over that time and you think through that, you know, then you start to see, you know, cheaper costs on day one to buy in, mm. cheaper costs to operate the building and cheaper costs to maintain the building. Mm. So, you know, and obviously lower carbon costs as well. Mm. So, and then, you know, I was... Yeah, I guess, you know, so I started Nightingale with a bunch of Melbourne architects. It was, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, the incredible Tamara Veltre from <laughs> Breathe who borrowed against her house many times to make it all possible. That's my partner That's in right. life and in work. She is sick of me. But um, anyway, and also, I mean, she helped out with the financials on Nightingale, you know, mm. all the way through. But I think that, you know, what we've seen with Nightingale over the last kind of, you know, five years. So I, I was the managing director there for a few years. I stepped down in June 30 last year. Mm. Dan McKenna has stepped up as the new CEO. He's the, he's the guy that has been there since the start. He understands, you know, what, you know, what's happening with the ballot data. Mm. So when we go to a ballot, he's seeing this increasing number of single women aged over 55, you know, balloting in. Mm is seeing our small footprint housing, so our tile house apartments that might only be 25 square metres, the ballot numbers for those going through the roof. Wait, you say housing at 25 square metres? That's <laughs> horrible. Um, so for anyone in Melbourne uh, who knows the Cairo apartments designed in 1936 by Best Overend, I was lucky enough to go through Michael Roper's um, renovation of one of those apartments uh, on a jury a few years ago was about 24 square metres and it was unbelievable. It was so good. And so that apartment or that, that 24 square metre apartment type in Cairo became the um, the prototype for Madeleine Sewell in Sky House in Nightingale Village to say, what does small footprint housing look like in, you know, in 2020? And so in Sky House, there are seven small footprint dwellings. And, um, and then we worked really hard, the Nightingale team, to set pricing where those small footprint houses were cross-subsidised by the bigger uh, apartments with the north facing and the big balconies. So, you know, there were 25 square metre apartments in Sky House selling for $215,000, mm. you know. So the, mm. so the cost of serving, servicing the debt for Geordie that lives in Sky House mm. is cheaper than what he'd be paying to live in a crappy mm. rental house in Brunswick. And he has... His housing future sorted there. Mm. So, you know, Dan is across all of that ballot data. He sees what's happening with, you know, demand for smaller footprint housing, for smaller uh, price points on the way in. And so I think that, you know, 
the future for them is they're building another Nightingale Village, mm. just to the south of Nightingale Village. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and they've got five architects working on that with mm. a massive linear park. It mm. looks absolutely incredible. Yeah. You know, they're working on um, some townhouses and looking at a bunch of kind of joint ventures with, um, you know, with other parties in different states to say, how do we bring, you know, how do we bring the Nightingale, you know, ethos or, you know, I don't know, you, you know, like, like, like if you talk about the things that Nightingale has to deliver on, mm. like the electrification piece, how can Nightingale have a broader impact on the market? And obviously we're already seeing this in Brunswick, right? So mm. we're seeing that, that milieu are delivering buildings that, that, that meet all of the Nightingale, you know, mm. um, standards, mm. you know, so that, so we're seeing kind of great outcomes with that. We're seeing other developers, you know, delivering housing here that's, you know, seven and a half star, 100% electric. And we're seeing, you know, that in the inner north that there's a requirement for people to actually, when they're buying an apartment, they want to understand what that means. Mm. And so I feel like that Nightingale has helped set that benchmark, you know. Mm. And it doesn't matter what the National Construction Code say is the minimum requirement for a NATO's energy rating. Mm. In the inner north, you know, if you're not building the seven and a half stars, mm. you know, you're not serious. I think that's what the market perceives here. Mm. So there's a there's definitely there's a ripple effect outside of Nightingale here. Mm. So, I was going to say something else, and I. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> so, so when when people because you've got such a huge wait list now, and you've got all of these um, uh, highlighted, I guess, uh, demographics who are trying to get in, and you want to give them accessible housing and affordable housing, how do you manage that? Does that all go through the Nightingale team, or is this where you work with other organisations that specifically align with with those particular groups? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, Dan is probably the right person to, to, Dan McKenna is probably the right person to answer this question, you know, now, not me. But, Mm. you know, um, I think that, you know, I definitely speak to, you know, when I was there, you know, a year ago working, you know, day to day at Nightingale, it was pretty clear that, you know, we knew what we were good at, Mm. which was in housing delivery. There's a communities team there led by Toby Dean and Toby's really, really good at engaging with people and, um, you know, just having a really open and clear dialogue with people. So when we go to information sessions about our building, we talk clearly about what Nightingale is mm. and what Nightingale isn't. What you can expect from us and what we expect oh. from you. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note that if, you, if you're if you buying into a Nightingale building, there is an expectation that you'll be involved in two working days a year, for example, mm-hmm. to help do some gardening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like much. Then you'll be expected to come to four meetings a year to talk about how do you make your community better in some way or another? It might be about, you know, uh, a waste management plan or it might be about, you know, having organising a, a get-together on the roof, whatever that is. But there is some requirement, you know, and then there's an induction on the way in to talk about, you know, how do we deal with our, you know, with, yeah, look with our own environmental footprint or our own kind of social footprint in that space. Mm-hmm. So Toby's really good at having really clear conversations with everyone about what that is. But... Nightingale isn't a community housing provider. Mm. You know, like like that's Jeanette Large and the Women's Property Initiatives team. That's what they do. So um, we work really closely. And again, it's Toby Toby's team that works really closely with Housing Choices and Women's Property Initiatives to make sure that that they're finding the right tenants to come into a community at Nightingale and they understand what's important to everyone else in there. So mm. that there's a values alignment around sustainability or caring about your neighbours, you know, those things. So that, mm. you know, women's property initiatives find people that, that that fit into that community. We don't have, you know, yeah, they're not going to put, you know, like the, the antisocial person <laughs> in the middle of the Nightingale community just hating on everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so, so mm-hmm. yeah, I think that, yeah, Nightingale I think is pretty good at mm. kind of knowing what it's good at mm. and knowing what it's not good at, mm. you know, or where it doesn't have expertise. And also there's just so much... You know, we all know as architects how hard it is to um, deliver housing. Um, and so I think that everyone just needs to focus on the bits that they're good at. Mm, okay. So, yeah, I guess if the benchmark's 20% of all Nightingale projects, yeah, how have you seen that, I guess, play out now that those people have moved in and they've, they've, taken, they've, they've taken their apartments and they're starting to engage with the rest of the community? How has that actually been, I guess, measured in a way or... Or, you know, what has the perception been on your part as well and actually living in the village? Well, I mean, in Sky House, so there's, you know, there's 20% of Sky House where I live. Mm. So Tam and I live there. Um, 20% of those residents, community housing tenants, I don't know 
which ones they are, Dan. So mm. I, I, the people that I've met, mm. like I've met, you know, I've met, I think I've met all my neighbours. Mm-hmm. You know, they all seem great. Yeah. Some are introverted, some are extroverted, but, you know, mm. like there's no one that really gives me a headache, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some quirky dudes in there. But um, mm. uh, so I don't, I, I, I don't know mm. who are the community housing tenants. That's great. Yeah, mm. so in answer to your question, I, I think that that means that that's a successful integration, right? So, yeah, I mean, everyone that, I'm, that I know in my building, I like. So, yeah, <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, I mean, of all of the – because I guess the, we talk a lot about the village and the village won you know, so many awards, the Victor, Victorian Chapter Awards. Next up is the National Awards, so I'll see how that goes. Fingers crossed. Yeah, and then um, you've got so many other nightingales that um, – I guess aren't in the village street. Yeah. This one or the, the new one to the south. But you've got other nightingales, so Anstey, Wurubaru Bick. Yeah, exactly. Nightingale one. So all yeah. of those have they how many of those have been finished and how is how has that all played out with this this growing community of Oh yeah, know. so really good question, Dan. So so I'm gonna try and describe spatially over this podcast how it works. <laughs> so in 2007, when we bought the Commons site, um, part of that process was a rezoning process where 42 sites were rezoned. Those 42 sites that were rezoned um, were called in the 2004 Brunswick Structure Plan, Anstey Urban Village. If you saw it, it didn't look like a village. It was uh, just a bunch of uh, warehouses and kind of tumbleweeds rolling down the street, right? It was, uh, it was pretty sad back then. Since that time in 2007, um, I've been on a little mission uh, to acquire sites along the rail corridor. You know, so what what most developers would call C grade sites. So um, they think that no one's going to want to live next to you know railway infrastructure. But of course, I've travelled outside of Australia mm-hmm. and I've seen that places close to train stations, mm-hmm. uh, close to good good civic infrastructure, are actually incredibly popular, and you can solve the acoustic issue with the with the rail. Now, the benefit of being next to the rail is that on the direct opposite side of the rail is all single res, mm-hmm. um, which means, sorry, single residential, those non-architects out there, which means that once you get to level one, you look out, out to the west for, you know, as far as the eye can see, you know, and um, you can even look up to the hill and Mooney ponds and see the building that is now the ATO's building, Australian mm-hmm. Taxation Office, and it looks like a cash register. So. <laughs> So let's check that out if you're looking. All the irony. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, we've um, for the architects out there that did that. Good job. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so then along the rail corridor, yeah, I mean, starting at the Commons, then we bought uh, Nightingale One, which is kind of across the road from Florence Street. Mm. Uh, we've recently acquired the site next to that. Six Degrees have been working on that, so that's you know going to be this great little project right next to the bike path. Mm. Um, then immediately north of the Six Degrees building is Nightingale Anstey, mm. and that's right on the right next to the Anstey train station with that great kind of you know, generous public colonnade. Six Degrees uh, repeating or replicating that colonnade through there, so there'll be great pedestrian separation from the bike path. And then on the opposite side of Albion Street is Wurruwuru Bic, mm. which has, again, the colonnade kind of, you know, running up next to the bike path, so we're... You know, where the state's been unable to provide safe cycling infrastructure, we've just decided as, you know, as architects to say, well, we'll solve it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we're providing space for pedestrians to walk separate to the um, to the bikes. Mm-hmm. And then going south, there's the commons, you know, south of um, Florence Street. And then we get to the village, you know. And again, through the village, there's currently six buildings there, but there was a seventh, right? So... Mm-hmm. Mon and the team from Wawoa had designed this incredible Nightingale building in there. Mm. And as part of our work with Marybeck Council at the time is that we did a trade-off with them. We sold the Mon's building back. Uh, so sorry, Mon. It was beautiful. And then uh, they acquired all these old warehouses there and building a park there. Mm. Then south of the park is Nightingale Village. South of Nightingale Village is uh, a little pedestrian muse that we've put in there. And that, so that pedestrian, so and Nottingham Village is basically centred around Duckett Street, which has since been closed to traffic and turned into a pedestrian haven. Mm. And then I call it pedestrian haven because there's no cars. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of dogs, kids, bikes. South of the village is a pedestrian muse, so we made a east-west link through there. South of the muse is Urban Coop, the co-housing project with Architecture Architecture in collaboration with Breathe 
and Nightingale, so an intentional community there. And then south of um, Urban Coop is that's that new kind of, you know, Nightingale Village, that Nightingale Village 2.0 with five more architects, you know, working on that. So, um, you know, Rachel Neeson from Sydney, um, Kennedy Nolan, uh, Habel, uh, Wawa, so Mon's going to get to do <laughs> her thing, and as uh, young architects, Leanne. So, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing that, and and some, and again, Open Work and Simone Bliss, I think, doing the landscape on that. I'm not sure, but I think that they're the landscape architects. But what I've seen, it looks incredible, right? Mm. So, mm. a big linear park, you know. So, basically, what we've been actively trying to do is to buy everything next to the upfield bike path mm. and turn the upfield bike path from the worst piece of cycling infrastructure in the country mm. and turn it into one of the best. That's the goal. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we're aware of Bic, um, and how has that project been a little bit different to the others? Because I know that Breathe has a very strong reconciliation action plan and how has that played into, I guess, the whole that whole thinking behind Breathe's, Breathe's progress in that area? Uh, look, I think that the, that was the first time that we'd met Aunty Gail and Aunty Julianne. And so I think that, you know, um, again, Jen Coolass, when she was at Nightingale Housing, kind of led the the reconciliation piece. Um, so we worked with the Wurundjeri Council. I'm um, out of the Wurundjeri Council. We met with two elders, Aunty Julianne and Aunty Gail, and they've just both been, yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting to work with them because incredibly collaborative but also you know, really clear in their feedback, you know. Mm. So I found Arnie Gale is, uh, you know, she's no, she's no pushover. <laughs> so Arnie Gale, uh, you know, uh, works me pretty hard through the whole process, but we've mm. learned so much through it. Mm. I think, you know, um, I think, you know, Breathe and Arnie Gale and Arnie Julianne and Nightingale, like we've all become, you know, good friends through that process. We've learned a lot through it. And it was interesting just like on the na- on the building naming, you know, we, we were mm. taking them through how we thought it should go as architects and Aunty Gail just laughed at me and told me to shut up and uh, <laughs> said that, you know, this is the way that it's going to work and mm. then she took as much time as she needed and then she came back, you know. And so if you think about Wuru Wuru Big, it talks about sky country, you know, and that this building sitting up above uh, the rail infrastructure, looking out to the west, to the north, to the south, to the east, you know, it's kind of this island, you know, site. It's kind of, it's the only bit of that land that's not zoned industrial, so it's the only bit zoned, um, zoned commercial one. Um, so it's the only bit that can get that high, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, it's all about sky country. And, uh, you know, she talks about, you know, the clouds, the moon, the sun, the stars, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it was actually quite beautiful kind of working through that whole process. And it wasn't, you know, yeah, it just wasn't what I anticipated. And then there were other more meaningful conversations about, you know, what is it that the Wurundjeri Council actually wanted? You know, they mm. wanted that some social procurement in the building contract to say that, mm. you know, for example, that some of the trades or some of the subcontractors would be owned by Indigenous mm. uh, Australians or First Nations Australians, easy. Mm. You know, they talked about some of the signage and wayfinding, you know, including language, mm. you know, mm. but also... On the roof, Aunty Gail was a big fan of, you know, if we've got the right biodiversity on the roof, and so she worked pretty closely with Open Work on that, mm. if we get the right biodiversity, Aunty Gail's saying that we're going to get particular insect life and bird life there, and if that's the case, then she wanted um, basically, you know, an artist to draw of those birds and those insects on parts of the rooftop because there's lots of kids moving into this building as well. And then the name of that bird in language and then the name of that bird and a little descriptor in English so that we can start to see, you know, that, you know, this is, this, that, that this land existed before we got here mm. and that this is what, um, you know, the Wurundjeri word is for a magpie, for example, mm. you know. Yeah, I think so, that's lovely because it's, I guess the idea of designing the country, a big part of that is also acknowledgement of the yeah, country that has always yeah. been here, you know. Well, also, I mean, mm. obviously the, the, I think that, if you don't know, like the greatest thing that Nightingale does is that that in the again in the owners' corporation rules, it doesn't cost Nightingale anything. Mm. It just is. Well, actually, it's, it starts with the contract of sale, right? Mm. So when you get the contract of sale from Nightingale, it starts with an acknowledgement to country and a background, mm. you know, of you know why it's important to talk about building on land that was never ceded, how mm. we need to acknowledge that, 
and why it talks about paying the rent. And then when you get to the owners' corporation rules, it says that if you live in a Nightingale building, mm. you need to pay $100 a year. So for clarity, that's $2 a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's less than 30 cents a day, right, <laughs> to live on someone else's country. Mm-hmm. And so everyone does that. And, and so why is that important? And so as an individual, it doesn't seem like much, right? It's $2 a day, $2 a week. Mm. Multiplied across, by the time all the Nightingale projects are finished under the new Nightingale team, that's a 1,000 projects, mm. you know, a 1,000 times 100, you know, so we get to, you know, we get to $100,000 a year mm. getting paid back to the traditional owners um, mm. so that the traditional owners can then start to, you know, ideally buy their own land back, yeah. you know. So, and if we could get other players like Lendlease and Mervac to start to do that as well, we start to talk about vast mm. amounts of money going back to traditional owners, mm. but everyone only paying a small amount mm. individually to make that possible. Mm. So pretty meaningful. What I will say about designing for country reconciliation is that it was frightening for us. Like, mm. you know, we care about it, but we didn't know how to do it. Mm. But what we found with the Wurundjeri Council uh, is that they were actually, you know, they were really patient with us, very kind to us, you know. They took us through the whole process. So I think that go into it, listen carefully, don't go in with preconceived ideas, and it's been actually a really great journey, you know. So just jump in and Start engaging. do your best. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, yes, it's just so great to hear about all the different um, people that we're bringing into Nightingale housing across so much of Brunswick, but also the rest of Australia as well. And, yeah, I think that's just one of those that's a really great message at the end to just start engaging with these different groups because, you know, everyone needs a house. house housing is a human right. So, yeah, thanks again so much for your time, for sharing all these great stories about what's happening with Nightingale. And, um, yeah, we can't wait to see what comes out next. Thanks, Heaps, Dan. This has been Hearing Architecture proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest, registered architect and founder of Breathe Architecture and Nightingale Housing, Jeremy McLeod. It's great to hear about all the initiatives you're undertaking to make sustainable housing more affordable and we can't wait to see what Breathe and Nightingale do in the future. We look forward to having you on the podcast again. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.